Good morning, everyone. Uh, I don't know about you, but my I love seeing the babies up here and baby dedication, but my heart felt this uh, like electricity go through it uh, with the Kennedys because uh, I had an older brother that died when he was three months old of a heart defect. And it was at that point, you've heard my story, that my dad began to drink to numb the pain and our family was destroyed. So, so grateful that Christ is risen. And if he's risen, he's big enough to mend the hearts of those who lose a child and continue to walk with him and trust him in ways that seem impossible to those who don't know Christ. So, very thankful for that uh, this morning. And uh, my goodness... I thought I was ready to preach, and then started thinking about my story and the craziness and sort of what caused it. So anyway, good morning again. <laughs> what is wrong with me? Okay. Uh, I have a grand announcement to make this morning. So you can give me a drum roll, if you would. After two years, starting in December of 2018, and 90 plus sermons, we are finishing teaching through the book of Luke today. Is that, you're tired of it, or, or is that more like, let's do something else? You know, there's a lot of mixed emotions there, right? Gosh. This is a surprise to me. There's been no other book that we've talked through, that I've talked through in 17 years, that have has had more of a impact on my heart and soul than the book of Luke. I'm surprised by that because I've read the Gospels countless times. But a deep dive into the book of Luke, I, I think it's because for two years, week after week after week, we have looked at and examined the most phenomenal person who ever walked on the face of the earth. And if you're not impacted by that, you need to check your own pulse. I will be forever grateful, and I know Monty is too, of the gift from God to study and teach through the Gospel of Luke to the very people that Monty and I care most about. Uh, the people of Fellowship Bible Church. And I hope you were impacted like that as well. If you were not, I would highly suggest you go back and watch every sermon. Not because we gave them, but because of what Luke unpacks for us. Certainly after these two years, certainly, I can't imagine that you wouldn't do what I'm about to say. Certainly after these two years, you are daily asking yourselves, one of the most critical questions a Christian can ask themselves. How can you afford to not be in God's word consistently? When you see and experience and learn about the life of Jesus Christ, the author of the 66 books of the Bible, how can you continue to live without the spiritual nourishment that comes from sitting at his feet and ingesting his words, the very words of God for all of life. You can't. Job tells us, 
Job 23, I have treasured the words of God more than my portion of food. That is to be our view of God's word. Meaning if you don't miss a meal, and from the looks of you and me, ain't many of you missing meals. We should never miss an opportunity to eat the scriptures. To be clear, crystal clear, there is no spiritual growth and change apart from God's word. It is not his only tool for life change, but I would argue it is his primary tool. And it always has been. Without it, we're clueless. Howard Hendricks put it this way, you're either in the Word and the Word is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ or you are in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. There's only two ways to go. No one drifts into godliness. It's very intentional to open the Scriptures, sit at the feet of the risen Christ that we just spoke of. He is more alive than we can ever imagine. Meaning he is not only alive, but he is at work. Oh, that we would be a church that would feast on the very words of God. Having said that, I'll never forget another quote by Howard Hendricks. Some of you may not know Howard. He was a famous professor for 50 years at Dallas Theological Seminary. I grew up with hundreds, I just uh, cleaned out my closet over a year ago when Joel left, hundreds of Howard Hendricks teaching tapes. Monty, I think, had him as a teacher at Dallas. I'll never forget another quote he said concerning our text of Luke 24, 50 through 53, and the parallel text of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus' last words. Hendricks put it this way, he said, last words are lasting words. Meaning, the last words a person speaks to you, you remember. I remember my dad on his deathbed three weeks before he passed away. It's the last time I saw him. Midnight, he sat up. I've been wiping his brow. He had lung cancer. He was sweating. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry. I have a lot of regrets. I wish I hadn't drank so much. I wish I had treated your mom better. I wish I had thrown the football with you more. He knew I was going to preach his funeral, and he said, tell those men, don't live like me. And I've been telling myself, and literally thousands of men at Family Life Conferences, those very words ever since. I have never forgot them. So today, as we engage in the last earthly words of Jesus in his immediate ascension into heaven, applying these words, I want you to know, will change the entire direction and purpose of your life no matter what your occupation is. And if it doesn't, look, it's a commentary on you. But before we do this, can we take just a minute and take a quick journey down memory lane 
in the book of Luke. You want to do that? Take a deep breath. Here we go. We did 11 mini-series. Our first one was the incursion, the dawn will break upon us from on high, Luke chapters 1 and 2. Could somebody grab me a Kleenex or hand me one or something? I'm dripping and drizzling and crying. Bless your heart. Miss God, no, we're crying together. That's plastic? Oh, I was like, she, oh, I was like, she gave me a piece of plastic to wipe me. I was like, okay. Uh, thank you. Encouraging, the dawn will break upon us from Ohio, Luke chapter 1 and 2. The word incursion is a sudden invasion. And in our context, it was a sudden invasion, but a long-planned invasion by God via his son to retake what was always his. The birth of Jesus, God in the flesh, has changed everything. And we agree with the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. It says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, the angel said, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there is no end. Those words have never been truer. We today are part of that kingdom, which is no end. Our second little mini-series we called ID, the promised son of the living God, Luke chapter 3 through 4, 13. We know this, that all of history is God's history or God's story and God's redemptive history at this point, have been put on pause for 400 years, all the way back to the last words of the prophet Malachi, in the book of Malachi. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the text teaches us, and now the word of God comes to John the Baptist. That word was the same word that caused the universe to exist, that was spoken into existence. And in doing so, God promised or fulfilled a promise that he had spoken to Isaiah 700 years previously in Isaiah chapter 40. There will be one coming, and he will have a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist hears the word of the Lord. John the Baptist's message was, get ready, the king is coming. And six months later, Jesus starts his public ministry. John the Baptist ID'd, identified who Jesus was. And his message was, repent, the king has arrived. Our third mini-series, we called it Verify, the Lord and his authority in chapters 4, 14 through 6, 11. So here's what Dr. Luke does now. He wants to make sure that what has been said about Jesus is actually accurate. Remember Luke's a doctor. He's a de detailed guy. He, he, he records this with great accuracy. Luke methodically verifies Jesus' authority, scripturally, spiritually, 
his authority to forgive, to lead, his organizational authority over the church. Luke is some way saying, if he is indeed the promised son of God, then surely he can prove it and leave no doubt. That's exactly what Jesus did. Fourthly, we talked about or had a series called Kingdom Foundations. Luke 6, 17 through 49, just a few verses. Now, here's what we know. As humans, if we're totally honest and transparent, our natural bent, the natural way you and I think is this. If it were not for people, I'd be fine. You ever thought that? People are idiots, except me. But the problem is, I'm a people too. And so are you, Joe. I know you think like that all the time. The wife just nodded her head. Yep. The Lord led me to say that, so don't blame it on him. As G.K. Chesterton said, we as people love to look for loopholes when it comes to the tough commands of Jesus. A true Christ follower, though, does not look for loopholes because Jesus does not give us that option. And in just these few verses, Jesus, as he begins to establish what it means to live for this kingdom of God that he's initiating... In doing so, if you go back and read the text, he turns our whole human value system on his head. Flip, flop. And he commands that we love those we'd rather hate. Powerful command. Our fifth miniseries was called Tis So Sweet, one of my favorites. There's no greater need as Christians than to learn how sweet it is to trust in Jesus in all life. It's one of the reasons I thought of the family that lost their child. This is how we actually mature in Christ. In these two chapters, chapters 7 and 8, we really get to see up close and personal Jesus engaging people who had great hardships Doubt, deep, dark sin, and painful, painful struggles. And Luke makes it very clear. Because of who Jesus is, you can trust him even in the midst of suffering and pain this side of heaven. That he will not waste your pain to conform you into his own image. Key verse in those chapters was Luke 8, 15. There are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Translated, those who hear the word and trust Jesus, Luke makes a declaration, will bear fruit. Spiritual fruit. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There are many sorts of broken hearts, and Jesus Christ is very, very good at healing them all. Our sixth miniseries we call The Lord and His Followers, just one chapter, Luke chapter 9. And I'll put it this way, since the birth of the church, one of the most asked and answered questions has been, 
What does it look like to follow hard after Christ? And so because that's such an important question, we spent seven weeks, seven sermons in one chapter unpacking that and learning how to answer that question correctly. We talked about that Jesus never, ever wanted fans. He didn't care how many likes he had on social media. He wanted followers, followers who would emulate his life by living and doing as he lived and did. Our seventh mini-series we called The Road Less Traveled. Luke 9, 51, all the way, if you remember, seemed like we would never get out of this, this narrative to Luke 19, 44. It was at this point that some of you thought, how long is this book? <laughs> so what we did for 10 chapters, we followed Jesus in what many have called the travel narrative. As Luke recounts Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. And at the end of the day, at the very down-to-earth level, here's what Luke does. He impacts for us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as flawed human beings in a sick-sin world. And if we do this, Luke says, you're going to travel a road that is less travel. You're going to travel a road that is narrow. And very few people travel it. This road less traveled is filled with much difficulty, but also much delight. During these 10 months of Jesus' life, we get to see up close Jesus' march to Jerusalem to institute a revolution and to initiate the coming of the kingdom of God. He would not be stopped, and he was not stopped. The text tells us as Jesus set his jaw and fixed his eyes on the cross and the resurrection, every story he told in these chapters, every miracle he performed, every conversation he had, had the cross pulsating, one writer said, in his mind and heart, while at the same time training his men, who at the time seems spiritually dumb. Isaiah predicted this 730 years previously in Isaiah 50. It reads, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like flint to Jerusalem, and he who vindicates me is near. Our eighth mini-series is called Lord in the Flesh. Luke 20, verse 1 through 21, 4. So here's what Luke does here. He now brings to light Jesus' authority as God in the flesh because, and because of that authority, he has authority over even those who try to undermine his authority. And what we saw in this chapter, chapter and a half, is Jesus is saying, this is my nation and these are my people. And I'm about to make the, the whole world my people as I break open the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And what we also saw was over and over the religious leaders put Jesus on the hot seat with this one question. Who do you think you are to do and say what you do and say? Like, like what makes you think you can come in here and do and say what you do? And then we saw over and over Jesus shows and tells them the answer. I can do and I can say what I do and say because I am God. And because of that, they killed him. The ninth series was resolved to be ready, Luke chapter 21. Very simple but very difficult for us to, to grasp. And that is that Luke is communicating to you and I. He wants us to internalize the reality that one or two things are going to happen. And that is you're going to die as a believer if you know Christ and spend eternity with him. Or he's going to return. Maybe there's a third option. If you don't know Christ, you're going to die and spend eternity apart from him. And he, he wants us to know it in such a way that it really does affect how you and I live, work, and play. It affects everything. I do want to remind you how comprehensive this thought of resolve to be ready and Jesus' return of, or us meeting him face to face after death is. One in 30 verses in the whole New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. It's a major theme. Our tenth miniseries we call The Ransom. We just finished it up. You probably remember that one more than others because it was near Luke 22 and 23. It was about the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, the death and burial of Jesus. We talked about that it is the most profound, stunning, gracious, and yet brutal story in the history of the world. It is the story of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It is the story of God the Father demanding a ransom in order to release us from the condemnation that each of us is born into. And it is the story of Jesus being that one and only ransom to pay that price. To pay off the wrath of a holy God. And then our last series. We're here. The Reveal. Luke 24. It's about the resurrection of Christ and his reveal to his followers. And so we come to the end of that chapter today. So read with me just a few verses in Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God or worshipping God or praising God. Short and sweet. The ascension, 
verses 50 through 53. The story of Jesus, as we know, began when he left heaven and came to earth, and it ends when he leaves earth and goes back to heaven. It begins with the incarnation, and it ends with exaltation or worship. It began with praise and worship and ends the same way. Luke, just for some trivia, is the only gospel writer, the only writer of scripture that records the ascension. Matter of fact, he records it in his gospel of Luke. He ends the gospel of Luke with it. And he begins his next book, Acts, with the ascension of Christ. So I've put it in your notes. Let me read it to you because it gives us a few more details about our text this morning. This comes from Acts 1, verse 1 through, or 3 through 11. Luke writes of the ascension. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still not quite connecting the dots. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, not you might be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went back, I love this, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In some ways, why are you looking into heaven? There is work to be done. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Our context for this ascension, we have to go back to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. And here's what happens. Jesus appears to his followers, if you remember, on Sunday night after his resurrection that morning. And for the next 40 days, in order to prove to them that he is alive, here's what he did. First of all, he ate fried fish. There ain't nothing like proving you alive eating some good old fried catfish or whatever they have in the Mideast. He connected the dots for them about how he is the Messiah, remember that, that the Old Testament spoke of. That's me, that's me, that's me. He appeared to the ten disciples in the upper room without Thomas. Then he appeared again to the eleven disciples when Thomas was present because Thomas had a little doubting problem. Remember that? And, he, and Jesus said, Thomas, come here, big fella. Now, he might not have said that, but I'm imagining if I was Jesus, I said, Come here, big fella. Put your finger in my scars. I'm alive. Then he appeared to the seven of the disciples where they were fishing in the lake of Galilee. And then he appeared to the 11 disciples on a mountain. And 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us he appeared to more than 500. And at some point, 
he appeared to his half-brother James. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says. Acts 1 tells us he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I just want to ask you this question. Do you think they were listening with different ears than they listened to before? Oh, yeah. Look, before they sat there and listened to Jesus preach, checking their watches. Oh, man, I'm hungry. Or I got to go home and watch Netflix. Or, you know, that's good. That's good stuff. But now they got paper and pen out. And they're actually using the notes that the teaching pastors pass out. <laughs> if you want to apply that personally, help yourself. If you feel convicted, it's from God. <laughs> that's why we give notes. But I'm telling you, we look, we laugh, and that's good. I want you to laugh. That's exactly why I said it. I'm telling you, I'm telling me, you and I need to start listening with a different set of ears because this Jesus who's proven to them that he is alive, he is alive today. He's saying the same thing to you that he was saying to them. He's saying the kingdom of God is worth living for. The kingdom of God is your mission. The kingdom of God is at work because I'm at work in the lives of my people. This is not for them only. This is for us too. What kind of things was he teaching? He talked about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come with power. Acts 10 tells us, he says, to preach that he was the judge of the living and the dead. And he did all of this in a glorified body, meaning he could walk through walls. We don't understand what that means. He could disappear and appear at his will. But also they knew it was him because of the scars in his hands and in his side and his feet. So what happened during the ascension? Well, the text tells us Jesus takes his followers out to Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. He leaves at the same place, folks, he's going to return because the scripture tells us that. It's a town that we saw numerous times in the book of Luke, if you remember. It's where his dear friends, maybe some of his dearest friends on the face of the earth were from, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's where he shook up all of Israel by raising Lazarus from the dead. Place that he'd been many times, the Gospels tell us, with people that he loved dearly. And the text tells us he lifts up his hands and he blessed them. Now, our danger is to think of this blessing as some hallmark kind of sentimental Blessings to you. This literally says he pledged to them blessing. He promised to them blessing. He declares to them his blessing. So what we know, putting the text together, Matthew 28 tells us he has just given them the command to take the gospel to the world. Same command he gives us. He's saying to them, that's your life work. That's your life purpose. Just like he tells us, no matter what your occupation is, your life's work and purpose is to take the gospel to the world. And then his last words are a declaration and promise of who they are now in him, a blessing. 
that as he departs to sit at the right hand of the Father, he tells them he will fulfill all his promises to them. I will always be with you. I love you. The mercy and grace and salvation and comfort and peace and the access you have to me because of my shed blood, I promise you, I give it to you. If you want a little extra reading today, go read Ephesians 1 where it says, Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then in the first three chapters of Ephesians after that, it lists over and over and over and over who you and I are in Christ. That you get your worth and your value and your significance not because of anything on this earth, not because of the color of your skin. And I have a black daughter, and I tell her over and over, the least important thing about you is that you are an African-American and have black skin, just as it is to me as a white person. The least important thing about you is that you have a good job and make a lot of money. The least important thing about you is you have a big house and stuff. The most important thing about you is that you are in Christ. And that's the blessing he's given them. I don't know about you, but as I read the text this week, I just had this, this emotion of just exhilaration. Can you imagine being there? God speaking directly over you about who you are in him. It's exactly what he does to you and I through his word. And we just, we just go, nah, not me. I know it's for everybody else. Folks, embrace it. Let it sink in. Let it weave down into your soul. You and I are in Christ forever. So they go from the depth of fear and doubt to great courage and joy. Actually, Jesus' departure in the ascension is a vindication of himself. Because it represents the fulfillment of the prediction that he made at his trial. If you remember from Luke 22, he says... From now on, the Son of Man would be seen at the Father's right hand. That's what he told the religious leaders. So Jesus was put to death for making that offensive claim to the Jewish leaders. So now the ascension shows that the claim was true and the execution of Jesus was unjust. It's validation of who he is. Jesus departs and in heaven there's a coronation. Hebrews 8 tells us we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven to rule, to intercede for his people until his second coming. The ascension may be the end of his earthly ministry, but it is the beginning of his heavenly reign. So what was their reaction from these first few verses? Honestly, as I looked at it, I was like, 
Their reaction was the only reaction that could have happened. They exploded in fully formed worship. Point, the more you and I see clearly who Jesus is, the more you and I internalize the realness of Jesus Christ, the more you will worship with fully informed worship. And those songs you sing and those prayers you pray will have a new level of intensity and realness because you're not just talking to some sky fairy that you've created in your mind or some God who his only attribute is love and joy, which I love love and joy. But you have a fully comprehensive picture of this God who has been merciful to you beyond description and it said, you are now in Christ. That changes your worship. But it also, I'll tell you what else it changes. It changes your obedience. Because fully informed worship results in full, fully informed obedience. How do I know? Look at verse 49. If you just go back, Jesus tells them to do what? To go wait to the Holy Spirit to come upon them. That's exactly what they did. They didn't say, you know, I'm going to stop by and we're going to go over here to Smyrna and eat. Now they went straight back to Jerusalem and waited for 10 days because he said to. And it's not obedience out of, I got to obey God. It's this obedience that says, oh, Lord, I know I struggle. Lord, I know I'm going to fall. I know I'm going to skin my knee and bloody my nose, but my heart wants to know you in such a way that I desire to obey you in all things. That's what happened here. Maybe the last question we'll ask and answer is why is it important? Well, a couple of things, bullet points. One, salvation work is done. It's done and finished. Jesus says it's finished. If a person wants to know God, it's very possible. Matter of fact, I'll tell you this. Just last uh, week, uh, nine days ago, a person who had been in church all their life came to Christ in my bonus room. Jesus is still bringing people to Christ. Secondly, ascension. The ascension tells us and shows us that you and I will depart this world, that you and I will have a glorified body, you and I will be in the presence of Christ forever. Thirdly, the passing of the work of ministry to his followers. The Spirit of Christ comes upon us to convict us, to equip us, to help us, but also to empower us to do things that we would never think of doing. And I know that sharing the gospel with someone is scary. But you can trust God and push through that and watch him use you in the life of another. Look, there's no room for us to say, I opt out. <laughs> Everybody's opting out in 2020, right? That didn't happen because of God's spirit. Satan is now defeated. Jesus took away from Satan the power of death, the thing he held over us. Jesus intercedes for us to the Father. There will never be a charge of guilt against God's chosen. Never. Because Jesus will say, Father, he's mine. 
she's mine. Six, it tells us he's coming back. Live for that. And then lastly, in your notes, it says the birth of the church. Obviously, Luke wrote Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts, which is the story of the birth of the church. And, and, and here, because Jesus left, the church was birthed. Luke tells the story of Christ on earth, and Acts tells the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church. And here's what happens. Ten days after this ascension, after Jesus departed, the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus just as he said it would. Matter of fact, Acts 1.8 is the key text in the whole book of Acts. And it reads, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is basically a repeat of the Great Commission given in Matthew 28. So since that day, the day we call Pentecost, 50 days post Jesus' resurrection, every person, hear me now, that places their trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power and indwells them. That is what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who has the Spirit of God indwelling them. It's not a person that just goes to church, not a person that just reads the Bible, not a person that says prayers. It is this, the same thing that happened to those first followers. And the mission to take the gospel to the world and pour their lives spiritually into others that was given the first followers that established the church becomes the mission of those who trust Christ today. And in this, there are great themes in the book of Acts as the church, which Jesus' ascension made possible. One, the priority of evangelism. From chapter 1 of Acts to the whole book, evangelism, sharing the gospel, dominates the book. Secondly, God is at work through his spirit via his people. <laughs> the people of God, regardless of their occupation, is using whatever gifts God has given them to move the kingdom forward and to build it. Thirdly, in Acts, we see this, this theme of this vibrant community. Monty talked about it this morning a little bit that was passionate about the mission. They cared for each other. They pursued holiness and Christ-likeness together, and they were learning to deal with issues that could affect their unity with each other. And what I mean is all the differences of social and economical and race and all that, all that they were pressing to the side and focusing on now this new family of who they were in Christ. Prayer was a fourth thing. 14 of the first 15 chapters in Acts mentions prayer. And then fifth and lastly, the book talks about tearing down human walls of isolation between people of different, people with great differences to become one in Christ. Here's what I'll say to us this morning. Those themes in the book of Acts for the church that made possible because Jesus 
departed and went to sit at the right hand of the Father are the same themes that should be true of Fellowship Bible Church. And if they're not, we're not being the church. And you can say something. Right here it is. You know what the church is? There they are, five big themes. I love how Dr. Bach ends it in his commentary. He says, Jesus is Lord of all, so the gospel can now go to all. You and I are part of the greatest work ever, the most important work ever. We all play a role. That's why we're going to been doing this gifting thing. Remember that? So let's go. He's alive. He lived. He died. He rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is building his kingdom. In our world today, that's some great news. Focus right there. Take a minute and ask the question, so what this morning? How can you apply this to your life? Stand with me if you would. Lord, uh, man, I, pr- I pray for all of us, myself included, that we would hear these words this morning as a godly challenge. That we would learn to, to love your word, to live for your kingdom, to live as if you're alive. That we would, you would grow us in a way that our duplicity between what we say and what we do uh, uh, closes the gap that we would mature in Christ we would care for one another we'd be about your mission we'd be prayerful people Lord use us in this community throughout the world thank you that you you made us in Christ we are grateful love you. And everyone said, Amen.